Hi everybody, Carla here and welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. Thank you so much for tuning in. Before I get started, just let me say that if you'd like to make a contribution to the podcast, please do so at anchor.fm slash Carla 3507 or if you prefer cash app dollar sign Jess T-S-M. Thank you so much. I really, really do appreciate it. And now I have for you today, Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. What I'm finding is that Dr. Morrison has affected me much like Alice Walker did with the color purple, a gut punch for me with a startling very first page, like from the very first page. So please be warned of the explicity in this novel and tuck in for Dr. Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye here at Carla Reads the Classics. Here is the house. It is green and white. It has a red door. It is very pretty. Here is the family. Mother, father, Dick and Jane live in the green and white house. They are very happy. See Jane. She has a red dress. She wants to play. Who will play with Jane? See the cat. It goes meow, meow. Come and play. Come play with Jane. The kitten will not play. See mother. Mother is very nice. Mother, will you play with Jane? Mother laughs. Laugh, mother, laugh. See father. He is big and strong. Father, will you play with Jane? Father is smiling. Smile, father, smile. See the dog. Bow wow goes the dog. Do you want to play with Jane? See the dog run. Run, dog, run. Look, look, here comes a friend. The friend will play with Jane. They will play a good game. Play, Jane, play. Here is the house. It is green and white. It has a red door. It is very pretty here. Here is the family. Mother, father, Dick and Jane live in the green and white house. They are very happy. See Jane. She has a red dress. She wants to play. Who will play with Jane? See the cat. It goes meow, meow. Come and play. Come and play with Jane. The kitten will not play. See mother. Mother is very nice. Mother, will you play with Jane? Mother laughs. Laugh, mother, laugh. See, father, he is big and strong. Father, will you play with Jane? Father is smiling. Smile, father, smile. See the dog. Pow, wow, goes the dog. Do you want to play? Do you want to play with Jane? See the dog. Run, run, dog, run. Look here, comes a friend. The friend will play with Jane. They will play a good game. Play, Jane, play. Here is the house. It is green and white. It has a red door. It is very pretty. Here is the family. Mother, father, Dick, and Jane live in the green and white house. They are very happy. See Jane. She has a red dress. She wants to play. Who will play with Jane? See the cat? It goes meow, meow. Come and play. Come and play with Jane. The kitten will not play. See mother? Mother is very nice. Mother, will you play with Jane? Mother laughs. Laugh, mother, laugh. See father? He is big and strong. Father, will you play with Jane? Father is smiling. Smile, father, smile. See the dog. Bow wow goes the dog. Do you want to play? Do you want to play with Jane? See the dog. Run. Run, dog. Run. Look, here comes a friend. A friend will play with Jane. They will play a good game. Play, Jane. Play. Quiet as it's kept, there were no marigolds in the fall of 1941. We thought, at the time, that it was because Piccola was having her father's baby that the marigolds did not grow. 
A little examination and much less melancholy would have proved to us that our seeds were not the only ones that did not sprout. Nobody's did. Not even the gardens fronting the lake showed marigolds that year. But so deeply concerned were we with the health and safe of with the health and safe delivery of Piccola's baby, we could think of nothing but our own magic. If we planted the seeds and said the right words over them, they would blossom and everything would be all right. It was a long time before my sister and I admitted to ourselves that no green was going to spring from our seeds. Once we knew, our guilt was relieved only by fights and mutual accusations about who was to blame. For years, I thought my sister was right. It was my fault. I had planted them too far down in the earth. It never occurred to either of us that the earth itself might have been unyielding. We had dropped our seeds in our own little plot of black dirt, just as Piccola's father had dropped his seeds in his own plot of black dirt. Our innocence and faith were no more productive than his lust or despair. What is clear now is that all of that hope, fear, lust, love, and grief, nothing but Piccola and unyielding earth remains. Charlie Breedlove is dead. Our innocence, too. The seeds shriveled and died. Her baby, too. There really is nothing more to say except why. But since why is so difficult to handle, one must take refuge in how. Autumn. Nuns go by as quiet as lust and drunken men and sober eyes sing in the lobby of the Greek hotel. Rosemary Villanucci, our next-door friend, who lives above her father's cafe, sits in a 1939 Buick eating bread and butter. She rolls down the window to tell my sister Frida and me that we can't come in. We stare at her, wanting her bread. But more than that, wanting to poke the arrogance out of her eyes and smash the pride of ownership that curls her chewing mouth. When she comes out of the car, we will beat her up, make red marks on her white skin, and she will cry and ask us that we want her to pull her pants down. We will say no. We don't know what we should feel or do if she does, but whenever she asks us, we know she is offering us something precious and that our own pride must be asserted by refusing to accept. To accept. School has started and Frida and I get new brown stockings and cod liver oil. Grown-ups talk in tired, edgy voices about Zick's Coal Company and take us along in the evening to the railroad tracks where we fill burlap sacks with the tiny pieces of coal lying about. Later, we walk home, glancing back to see the great carloads of slag being dumped red-hot and smoking into the ravine that skirts the steel mill. The dying fire lights the sky with a dull orange glow. Frida and I lag behind, staring at the patch of color surrounded by black. It is impossible not to feel a shiver when our feet leave the gravel path and sink into the dead grass in the field. Our house is old, cold, and green. At night, a kerosene lamp fights one, lights one large room. The others are braced in darkness, peopled by roaches and mice. Adults do not talk to us. They give us directions. They issue orders without providing information. When we trip and fall, they glance at us. If we cut or bruise ourselves, they ask us, are we crazy? When we catch colds, they shake their heads in disgust at our, in disgust at our lack of consideration. How, 
they ask us. Do you expect anybody to get anything done if you are all sick? We cannot answer them. Our illness is treated with contempt, foul black drought, and castor oil that blunts our minds. When on a day after a trip to collect coal, I cough once loudly through bronchial tubes already packed tight with phlegm, my mother frowns. Great Jesus, get on in that bed. How many times do I have to tell you to wear something on your head? You must be the biggest fool in town. Frida, get some rags and stuff that window. Frida restuffs the window. I trudge off to bed full of guilt and self-pity. I lie down in my underwear. The metal in my black garters hurt my legs, but I do not take them off for it is too cold to lie stockingless. It takes a long time for my body to heat its place in the bed. Once I have generated a silhouette of warmth, I dare not move for there is a cold place one half inch in either direction. No one speaks to me or asks how I feel. In an hour or two, my mother comes. Her hands are large and rough, and when she rubs the Vic salve on my chest, I am rigid with pain. She takes two fingers full of it at a time and massages my chest until I am faint. Just when I think I will tip over into a scream, she scoops out a little of the salve on her forefinger and puts it in my mouth, telling me to swallow. A hot flannel is wrapped around my neck and chest. I am covered up with heavy quilts in order to sweat, which I do promptly. Later, I throw up, and my mother says, what did, you, what, what did you puke up on the bed clothes for? Don't you have sense enough to hold your head out of the bed? Now, look what you did. You think I got time for nothing but washing up your puke? The puke swaddles down the pillow onto the sheet, green-gray with flecks of orange. It moves like the inside of an uncooked egg, stubbornly clinging to its own mass, refusing to break up and be removed. How... I wonder, can it be so neat and nasty at the same time? My mother's voice drones on. She is not talking to me. She is talking to the puke, but she is calling it my name, Claudia. She wipes it up as best she can and puts a scratchy towel over the large wet place. I lie down again. The rags have fallen from the window crack and the air is cold. I dare not call her back and am reluctant to leave my warmth. My mother's anger humiliates me. Her words chafe my cheeks, and I am crying. I do not know that she is not angry with me, but at my sickness. I believe she despises my weakness for letting the sickness take hold. By and by, I will not get sick. I will refuse to. But for now, I am crying. I know I am making more snot, but I can't stop. My sister comes in. Her eyes are full of sorrow. She sings to me. When the deep purple falls over sleepy garden walls, someone thinks of me. I doze, thinking of plums, walls, and someone. But was it really like that, as painful as I remember? Only mildly, or rather, it was a productive and fructifying pain. Love, thick and dark as alaga syrup, eased up into that cracked window. I could smell it. Taste it sweet, musty, with an edge of wintergreen in its base, everywhere in that house. It stuck along with my tongue to the frosted window panes. It coated my chest along with the salve, and when the flannel came undone in my sleep, the clear, sharp curves of air outlined its presence on my throat. 
and then the night, when my coughing was dry and tough, feet padded into the room, hands repenned the flannel, readjusted the quilt, and rested a moment on my forehead. So when I think of autumn, I think of somebody with hands who does not want me to die. It was autumn, too, when Mr. Henry came, our rumor. Our rumor. The words ballooned from the lips and hovered about our heads, silent, separate, and pleasantly mysterious. My mother was all ease and satisfaction in discussing his coming. You know him, she said to her friends. Henry Washington. He's been living over there with Miss Della Jones on 13th Street. But she's too adult now to keep up, so he's looking for another place. Oh, yes. Her friends do not hide their curiosity. I've been wondering how long he was going to stay up there with her. They say she's real bad off. Don't know who he is half the time and nobody else. Well, that old crazy nigger she married up with didn't help her head none. Did you hear what what he told folks why he left her? Uh-uh. What? Well, he run off with that trifling Peggy from Alleria. You know, one of old Slack Bessie's girls? That's the one. Well, somebody asked him why he left a nice, good church woman like Della for that heifer. You know, Della always did keep a good house. And he said the honest-to-God real reason was he couldn't take no more of that violet water Della Jones used. Said he wanted a woman to smell like a woman. Said Della was just too clean for him. Old dog, ain't that nasty? You telling me? What kind of reasoning is that? No kind? Some men just dogs. Is that what gave her them strokes? Must have helped, but you know, none of them girls wasn't too bright. Remember that grin and Hattie? She never was right. And their Aunt Julia is still trotting up and down 16th Street talking to herself. Didn't she get put away? No, County wouldn't take her, said she wasn't harming nobody. Well, she's harming me. You want something to scare the living shit out of you? You get up at 5.30 in the morning like I do and see that old hag floating by in that bonnet. Have mercy. They laugh. Frida and I are washing mason jars. We do not hear their words, but with grown-ups, we listen to and watch out for their voices. Well, I hope don't nobody let me roam around like that when I get senile. It's a shame. What they gonna do about Della? Don't she have no people? A sister's coming up from North Carolina to look after her. I expect she wants to get a hold of Della's house. Oh, come on. That's an evil thought. If I ever heard one. What you want to bet? Henry Washington said that sister ain't seen Della in 15 years. I kind of thought Henry would marry her one of these days. That old woman? Well, Henry ain't no chicken. No, but he ain't no buzzard either. He ever been married to anybody? No. How come? Somebody cut it off? He's just picky. He ain't picky. You see anything around here you'd marry? Well, no. He's just sensible, a steady worker with quiet ways. I hope it works out all right. It will. How much you charging? Five dollars every two weeks. That'll be a big help to you. I'll say. Their conversation is like a gently wicked dance. Sound meets sound curtsy shimmies and retires another sound enters but is upstaged by all the other the two circle each other and stop sometimes their words move in lofty spirals other times they take strident leaps and all of it is punctuated with warm pulsed laughter like the throb of a heart made of jelly 
The edge, the curl, the thrust of their emotions is always clear to Frida and me. We do not, cannot know the meanings of all their words, for we are nine and ten years old. So we watch their faces, their hands, their feet, and listen for truth and timber. So when Mr. Henry arrived on a Saturday night, we smelled him. He smelled wonderful, like trees and lemon vanished and lemon vanishing cream and new Nile hair oil and flecks of sensin. He smiled a lot, showing all even teeth with a friendly gap in the middle. Frida and I were not introduced to him, merely pointed out, like, here's the bathroom, the clothes closet is here, and these are my kids, Frida and Claudia. Watch out for this window. It don't open all the way. We looked sideways at him, saying nothing and expecting him to say nothing, just to nod, as he had done at the clothes closet, acknowledging our existence. To our surprise, he spoke to us. Hello there. You must be Greta Garbo, and you must be Ginger Rogers. We giggled. Even my father was startled into a smile. Want a penny? He held out a shiny coin to us. Frida lowered her head, too pleased to answer. I reached for it. He snapped his thumb and forefinger and the penny disappeared. Our shock was laced with delight. We searched all over him, poking our fingers into his socks, looking up the inside back of his coat. If happiness is anticipation with certainty, we are happy. And while we waited for the coin to reappear, we knew we were amusing Mama and Daddy. Daddy was smiling and Mama's eyes went soft as they followed our hands wandering over Mr. Henry's body. We loved him. Even after what came later, there was no bitterness in our memory of him. She slept in the bed with us, Frida on the outside, because she is brave. It never occurs to her that if, in her sleep, her hand hangs over the edge of the bed, something will crawl out from under it and bite her fingers off. I sleep near the wall because that thought has occurred to me. Piccola, therefore, had to sleep in the middle. Mama had told us two days earlier that a case was coming, a girl who had no place to go. The county had placed her in our house for a few days until they could, until they could decide what to do, or more precisely, until the family was reunited. We were to be nice to her and not fight. Mama didn't know what got into people, but that old dog Breedlove had burned up his house, gone upside his wife's head, and everybody, as a result, was outdoors. Outdoors, we knew, was the real terror of life. The threat of being outdoors surfaced frequently in those days. Every possibility of excess was curtailed with it. If somebody ate too much, he could end up outdoors. If somebody used too much coal, he could end up outdoors. People could gamble themselves outdoors, drink themselves outdoors. Sometimes mothers put their sons outdoors, and when that happened, regardless of what the son had done, all sympathy was with him. He was outdoors, and his own flesh had done it. To be put outdoors by a landlord was one thing, unfortunate, but an aspect of life over which you had no control, since you could not control your income. But to be slack enough to put oneself, to put oneself outdoors, or heartless enough to put one's own kin outdoors, that was criminal. There is a difference between being put out and being put outdoors. If you are put out, you go somewhere else. If you are outdoors, there is no place to go. The distinction was subtle but final. Outdoors was the end of something, an irrevocable 
physical fact defining complementing our metaphysical condition. Being a minority in both caste and class, we moved about anyway on the hem of life, struggling to consolidate our weaknesses and hang on or to creep singly up into the major folds of the garment. Our peripheral existence, however, was something we had learned to deal with, probably because it was abstract, but the concreteness of being outdoors was another matter, like the difference between the concept of death and being, in fact, dead. Dead doesn't change, and outdoors is here to stay. Knowing that there was such a thing as outdoors bred in us a hunger for, pro- a hunger for property, for ownership, the firm possession of a yard, a porch, a grape arbor, Property black people spent all their energies, all their love on their nests like frenzied, desperate birds. They overdecorated everything, fussed and fidgeted over their hard-won homes, canned, jellied, and preserved all summer to fill the cupboards and shelves. They painted, picked, and poked at every corner of their house, and these houses loomed like hothouse sunflowers among the rows of weeds that we that were the rented houses. Renting blacks cast furtive glances at these owned yards and porches and made firmer commitments to buy themselves some nice little old place. In the meantime, they saved and scratched and piled away what they could in rented hovels, looking forward to the day of property. Charlie Breedlove, then a renting black, having put his family outdoors, had catapulted himself beyond the reaches of human consideration. He had joined the animals, was in fact an old dog, a snake, a ratty nigger. Mrs. Breedlove was staying with the woman she worked for. The boy, Sammy, was with some other family, and Pecola was to stay with us. Charlie was in jail. She came with nothing, no little paper bag with the other dress or a nightgown or two pair of whitish cotton bloomers. She just appeared with a white woman and sat down. We had fun in those few days Piccola was with us. Frida and I stopped fighting each other and concentrated on our guest, trying hard to keep her from feeling outdoors. When we discovered that she clearly did not want to dominate us, we liked her. She laughed when I clowned for her and smiled and accepted gracefully the food gifts my sister gave her. Would you like some graham crackers? I don't care. Frida bought her four graham crackers and a saucer and some milk in a blue and white Shirley Temple cup. She was a long time with the milk and gazed fondly at the silhouette of Shirley Temple's dimpled face. Frida and she had a long conversation about cute Shirley Temple was. I couldn't join them in their adoration because I hated Shirley, not because she was cute, but because she danced with Bojangles, who was my friend, my uncle, my daddy, and who ought to have been soft-shoeing it and chuckling with me. Instead, he was soft-shoeing it and chuckling with her, giving a lovely dance thing with one of those little white girls whose socks never slid down under their heels. So I said, I like Jane Withers. They gave me a puzzled look, decided I was incomprehensible, and continued their reminiscing about old squint-eyed Shirley. Younger than both Frida and Piccola, I had not yet arrived at the turning point in the development of my of my psyche, which would allow me to love her. What I felt at that time was unsullied hatred. But before that, I had felt a stranger more frightening than hatred for all the Shirley temples of the world. It had begun with Christmas and the gift of dolls. 
the big, the special, the loving gift was always a big blue-eyed baby doll. From the clucking sounds of adults, I knew that the doll represented what they thought was my fondest wish. I was bemused with the thing itself and the way it looked. What was I supposed to do with it? Pretend I was its mother? I had no interest in babies or the concept of motherhood. I was interested only in humans my own age and size and could not generate any enthusiasm at the prospect of being a mother. Motherhood was old age and other remote possibilities. I learned quickly, however, that I was expected to do. I learned quickly, however, what I was expected to do with the doll. Rocket, fabricate stories, situations around it, even sleep with it. Picture books were full of little girls sleeping with their dolls, Raggedy Ann dolls usually, but they were out of the question. I was physically revolted by and secretly frightened of those round moronic eyes, the pancake face, and orange worms of hair. The other dolls, which were supposed to bring me great pleasure, succeeded in doing quite the opposite. When I took it to bed, its hard, unyielding limbs resisted my flesh. The tapered fingertips on those dimpled hands scratched. If in my sleep I turned, the bone-cold head collided with my own. It was a most uncomfortable, patently aggressive sleeping companion. To hold it was no more rewarding. The starched gauze or lace on the cotton dress irritated any embrace. I had only one desire to dismember it, to see of what it was made, to discover the dearness, to find the beauty, the desirability that had escaped me, but apparently only me. Adults, older girls, shops, magazines, newspapers, window signs, all the world had agreed that a blue-eyed, yellow-haired, pink-skinned doll was what every girl treasured. Here, they said, this is beautiful, and if you are on this day worthy, you may have it. I fingered the face, wondering at the single-stroke eyebrows, picked at the pearly teeth stuck like two piano keys beneath between red bowline lips, traced the turned-up nose, poked the glassy blue eyeballs, twisted the yellow hair. I could not love it, but I could examine it to see what it was all the world said was so lovable. Break off the tiny fingers, bend the flat feet, loosen the hair, twist the head around, and the thing made one sound, a sound they said was the sweet and plaintive cry, Mama, but which sounded to me like the bleat of a dying lamb, or more precisely, our icebox door opening with rusty hinges in July. Remove the cold and stupid eyeball, it would bleat still, Ah, take off the head, shake out the sawdust, crack the back against the brass bed rail. It was still bleat. The gauze back would split, and I could see the disc with six holes, the secret of the sound, a mere metal roundness. Grown people frowned and fussed. You don't know how to take care of anything. I never had a baby doll in my whole life and used to cry my eyes out for them. Now you got one, a beautiful one, and you tear it up. What's the matter with you? How strong was their outrage? Tears threatened to erase the aloofness of their authority. The emotion of years of unfulfilled longing preened in their voices. I did not know why I destroyed those dolls, but I did not. But I did know that nobody ever asked me what I wanted for Christmas. Had any adult with the power to fulfill my desires taken me seriously and asked me what I wanted, they would have known that I did not want to have anything to own or possess any object. I wanted rather to feel something on Christmas Day. The real question would have been, Dear Claudia, what experience would you like on Christmas? I would have spoken up. 
I want to sit on the low stool in Big Mama's kitchen with my lap full of lilacs and listen to Big Papa play his violin for me alone. The, the lowness of the stool made for my body, the security and warmth of Big Mama's kitchen, the smell of the lilacs, the sound of the music, and since it would be good to have all my senses engaged, the taste of a peach, perhaps, afterwards. Instead, I tasted and smelled the acridness of tin plates and cups designed for tea parties that bored me. I looked with loathing on the new dresses that required a hateful bath in a galvanized zinc tub before wearing. Slipping around on the zinc, no one had time to play or soak, for the water chilled too fast, no time to enjoy one's nakedness, only time to make curtains of soapy water careen down between the legs, then the scratchy towels and the dreadful and, humil and humiliating absence of dirt, the irritable, unimaginative cleanliness. Gone the ink marks from legs and face, all my creations and accumulations of the day gone and replaced by goose pimples. I destroyed white baby dolls, but the dismembering of dolls was not quite the true horror. The truly horrifying thing was the, tr was the transference of the same impulses to little white girls. The indifference with which I could have axed them was shaken only by my desire to do so. To, to discover what eluded me, the secret of the magic they weaved on others, what made people look at them and say, aww, but not for me. The eye slide of the eye slide of black women as they approached them on the street, and the possessive gentleness of their touch as they handled them. If I pinched them, their eyes, unlike the crazed glint of the baby doll's eyes, they would fold in pain, and their cry would not be the sound of an icebox door, but a fascinating cry of pain. When I learned how repulsive this disinterested violence was, that it was repulsive against it that it was repulsive because it was disinterested, my shame floundered about for refuge. The best hiding place was love. Thus, the conversion from pristine sadism to fabricated hatred to fraudulent love. It was a small step to Shirley Temple. I learned much later to worship her. Just as I learned to delight in cleanliness, knowing even as I learned that the change was adjustment without improvement. Three quarts of milk. That's what was in that icebox yesterday. Three whole quarts. Now they ain't none. Not a drop. I don't mind folks coming in and getting what they want, but three quarts of milk? What the devil does anybody need with three quarts of milk? The folks my mother was referring to was Piccola. The three of us, Piccola, Frida, and I, listened to her downstairs in the kitchen, in the kitchen fussing about the amount of milk Piccola had drunk. We knew she was fond of the Shirley Temple cup and took every opportunity to drink milk out of it just to handle and see sweet Shirley's face. My mother knew that Frida and I hated milk and assumed Piccola drank it out of greediness. It was certainly not for us to dispute her. We didn't initiate talks with grown-ups. We just answered their questions. Ashamed of the insults that were being heaped upon our friend, we just sat there. I picked toe jam. Frida cleaned her fingernails with her teeth, and Piccola finger-traced some scars on her knee, her head cocked to one side. My mother's fussing soliloquies always irritated and depressed us. They were interminable. 
insulting and although indirect mama never named anybody just talked about folks and some people extremely painful in their thrust she would go on like that for hours connecting one offense to another until all of the things that chagrined her were spewed out then having told everybody and everything off she would burst into song and sing the rest of the day but it was such a long time before the singing part came in the meantime, our stomachs jellying and our necks burning, we listened, avoiding each other's eyes, and picked toe jam or whatever. I don't know what I'm supposed to be running here. A charity ward, I guess? Time for me to get out of the giving line and get in the getting line. I guess I ain't supposed to have nothing. I'm supposed to end up in the poorhouse. Look like nothing I do is going to keep me out of there. Folks just spend all their time trying to figure out ways to send me to the poorhouse. I got about as much business with another mouth to feed as a cat has with side pockets. And if I don't have enough trouble trying to feed my own and keep out of the poorhouse, now I got something else in there that's just going to drink me on in there. Well, no, she ain't. Not as long as I got strength in my body and a tongue in my head. There's a limit to everything. I ain't got nothing to just throw away. Don't nobody need three quarts of milk. Henry Ford don't need three quarts of milk. That's just downright sinful. I'm willing to do what I can for folks. Can't nobody say I ain't. But this has got to stop, and I'm just the one to stop it. Bible say watch as well as pray. Folks just dump their children off on you and you and go on about their business. Ain't nobody even peeked in here to see what that child has a to see that that child has a loaf of bread. Look like they would just peep in to see whether I had a loaf of bread to give her, but no. The thought don't even cross their mind. The old trifling Charlie been out of jail two whole days and ain't been here yet to see if his own child was living or dead. She could be dead for all he know, and that mama neither. What kind of something is that? When mama got around to Henry Ford and all those people who didn't care whether she had a loaf of bread, it was time to go. We wanted to miss the part about Roosevelt and the CCC camps. Frida got up and started down the stairs. Pecola and I followed, making a wide arc to avoid the kitchen doorway. We sat on the steps of the porch, where my mother's words could reach us only in spurts. It was a lonesome Saturday. The house smelled of Fells naphtha and the sharp odors of mustard greens cooking. Saturdays were lonesome, fussy, soapy days, second in misery only to those tight, starchy, cough-drop Sundays, so full of don'ts and set-yourself-downs. If my mother was in a singing mood, it wasn't so bad. She would sing about hard times, bad times, and somebody done gone and left me times. But her voice was so sweet, and her singing eyes so melty, I found myself longing for those hard times, yearning to be grown without a thin dime to my name. I looked forward to the delicious time when my man would leave me, when I could hate to see that evening sun go down, because then I would know my man has left this town. Misery colored by the greens and blues in my mother's voice took all of the grief out of the words and left me with a conviction that pain was not only endurable, it was sweet. But without song, those Sundays sat on my head like a cold scuttle, and if Mama was fussing, as she was now, it was like somebody throwing stones at it. And here I am, as poor as a bowl of yak me. What they think I am, some kind of Sandy Claus? Well, they can just take their stocking down because it ain't Christmas. We fidgeted. Let's do something, Frida said. What do you want to do? I asked. I don't know. Nothing. Frida stared at the tops of the trees. Pecola looked at her feet. 
You want to go up to Mr. Henry's room and look at the girly magazines? Frida made an ugly face. She didn't like to look at dirty pictures. Well, I continued, we could look at his Bible. That's pretty. Frida sucked her teeth and made a sound with her lips. Okay, then. We could go thread needles for the half-blind lady. She'll give us a penny. Frida snorted. Her eyes looked like snot. I don't feel like looking at them. What do you want to do, Piccola? I don't care, she said. Anything you want. I had another idea. We could go up to the alley and see what's in the trash cans. Too cold, said Frida. She was bored and irritable. I know, we could make some fudge. You kidding? With Mama in there fussing? When she starts fussing at the walls, you know she's going to be at it all day. She wouldn't even let us. Well, let's go over to the Greek hotel and listen to them cuss. Oh, who wants to do that? Besides, they say the same old words all the time. My supply of ideas exhausted, I began to concentrate on the white spots on my fingernails. The total signified the number of boyfriends I would have. Seven. Mama's soliloquy slid into the silence. Bible say feed the hungry. That's fine. That's all right. But I ain't feeding no elephants. Anybody need three quarts of milk to live need to get out of here. They in the wrong place. What is this? Some kind of dairy farm? Suddenly, Piccola bolted straight up, her eyes wide with terror. A whinnying sound came from her mouth. What's the matter with you? Frida stood up too. Then we both looked where Piccola was staring. Blood was running down her legs. Some drops were on the steps. I leaped up. Hey, you cut yourself. Look, it's all over your dress. A brownish red stain discolored the back of her dress. She kept whinnying, standing with her legs far apart. Frida said, oh, Lordy, I know. I know what that is. What? Piccola's fingers went to her mouth. That's ministrating. What's that? You know. Am I going to die? She asked. No, you won't die. It just means you can have a baby. What? How do you know? I was sick and tired of Frida knowing everything. Mildred told me, and Mama too. I don't believe it. You don't have to, dummy. Look, wait here. Sit down, Piccola, right here. Frida was all authority and zest. And you, she said to me, you go get some water. Water? Yes, stupid, water. And be quiet or Mama will hear you. Piccola sat down again, a little less fear in her eyes. I went into the kitchen. What you want, girl? Mama was rinsing curtains in the sink. Some water, ma'am. Right where I'm working? Naturally. Well, get a glass. Not no clean one either. Use that jar. I got a mason jar and filled it with water from the faucet. It seemed a long time filling. Don't nobody never want nothing till they see me at the sink. Then everybody got to drink water. When the jar was full, I moved to leave the room. Where are you going? Outside. Drink that water right here. I ain't going to break nothing. You don't know what you're going to do. Yes, ma'am, I do. Let me take it out. I won't spill none. You bet not. I got to the porch and stood there with the mason jar of water. Piccola was crying. What you crying for? Does it hurt? She shook her head. Then stop slinging snot. Frida opened the back door. She had something tucked in her blouse. She looked at me in amazement and pointed to the jar. What's that supposed to do? You told me. You said get some water. Not a little old jar full, lots of water to scrub the steps with, dumbbell. How was I supposed to know? Yeah, how was you? Come on. She pulled Piccola up by the arm. Let's go back here. 
they headed for the side of the house where the bushes were thick. Hey, what about me? I want to go. Shut up, Frida stage whispered. Mama will hear you. You watch the steps. They disappeared around the corner of the house. I was going to miss something again. Here was something important and I had to stay behind and not see any of it. I poured the water on the steps, sloshed it with my shoe and ran to join them. Frida was on her knees. A white rectangle of cotton was near her on the ground. She was pulling Pecola's pants off. Come on, step out of them. She managed to get the soiled pants down and flung them at me. Here, what am I supposed to do with these? Bury them, moron. Frida told Pecola to hold the cotton thing between her legs. How's she going to walk like that? I asked. Frida didn't answer. Instead, she took two safety pins from the hem of her skirt and began to pin the ends of the napkin to Pecola's dress. I picked up the pants with two fingers and looked around for something to dig a hole with. A rustling noise in the bushes startled me, and turning towards it, I saw a pair of fascinated eyes and a double white face. Rosemary was watching us. I grabbed for her face and succeeded in scratching her nose. She screamed and jumped back. Mrs. McTeer, Mrs. McTeer, Rosemary hollered. Frida and Claudia are out here playing nasty, Mrs. McTeer. Mama opened the window and looked down at us. What? They're playing nasty, Mrs. McTeer. Look, and Claudia hit me because I seen them. Mama slammed the window shut and came running out the back door. What you all doing? Oh, uh-huh, uh-huh, playing nasty, huh? She reached into the bushes and pulled off a switch. I'd rather raise pigs than some nasty girls. Least I can slaughter them. We began to shriek. No, mama, no, mama, we wasn't. She's a liar. No, ma'am, mama, no, ma'am. Mama grabbed Frida by the shoulder, turned her around, and gave her three or four stinging cuts on her legs. Gonna be nasty, huh? No, you ain't. Frida was destroyed, whippings wounded and insulted her. Mama looked at Pecola. You too, she said. Child of mine or not. She grabbed Pecola and spun her around. The safety pin snapped open on one end of the napkin and Mama saw it fall from under her dress. The switch hovered in the air while Mama blinked. What the devil is going on here? Frida was sobbing. I, next in line, began to explain. She was bleeding. We were just trying to stop the blood. Mama looked at Frida for verification. Frida nodded. She's ministrating. We was just helping. Mama released Piccola and stood looking at her. Then she pulled both of them toward her, their heads against her stomach. Her eyes were sorry. All right, all right. Now, stop crying. I didn't know. Come on now. Get on in the house. Go on home, Rosemary. The show is over. We trooped in, Frida sobbing quietly, Piccola carrying a white tail, me carrying the little girl gone to woman pants. Mama led us to the bathroom. She prodded Piccola inside and taking the underwear from me told us to stay out. We could hear water running in the bathtub. You think she's going to drown her? Oh, Claudia, you so dumb. She's just going to wash her clothes and all. Should we beat up Rosemary? No, leave her alone. The water gushed and over its gushing, we could hear the music of my mother's laughter. That night, in bed, the three of us lay still. We were full of awe and respect for Piccola. Lying next to a real person who was really ministrating was somehow sacred. She was different from us now, grown-up-like. 
She herself felt the distance, but refused to lord it over us. After a long while, she, she spoke very softly. Is it true that I can have a baby now? Sure, said Frida drowsily. Sure you can. But how? Her voice was hollow with wonder. Oh, said Frida, somebody has to love you. Oh, there was a long pause in which Piccola and I thought this over. It would involve, I supposed, my man, who, before leaving me, would love me, but there weren't any babies in the songs my mother sang. Maybe that's why the women were sad. The men left before they could make a baby. Then Piccola asked a question that had never entered my mind. How do you do that? I mean, how do you get somebody to love you? But Frida was asleep, and I didn't know. Here is the house. It is green and white. It has a door. It is very pretty. It is very pretty, pretty, pretty. This is an abandoned store on the southeast corner of Broadway and 35th Street in Lorraine, Ohio. It does not recede into its background of leaden sky, nor harmonize with the gray frame houses and black telephone poles around it. Rather, it foists itself on the eye of the passerby in a manner that is both irritating and melancholy. Visitors who drive to this tiny town wonder why it has not been torn down, while pedestrians who are residents of the neighborhood simply look away when they pass it. At one time, when the building housed a pizza parlor, people saw only slow-footed teenage boys huddled about the corner. These young boys met there to feel their groins, to smoke cigarettes and plan mild outrages. The smoke from their cigarettes they inhaled deeply, forcing it to fill their lungs, their hearts, their thighs, and deep at bay, the shivering, the shiveringness, the energy of their youth. They moved slowly, laughed slowly, but flicked the ashes from their cigarettes too quickly, too often, and exposed themselves to those who were interested as novices to the habit. But long before the sound of their lowing and the sight of their preening, the building was leased to a Hungarian baker, modestly famous for his brioche and poppy seed rolls. Earlier than that, there was a real estate office there, and even before that, some gypsies used it, used it as a base of operations. The gypsy family gave the large plate glass window as much distinction and character as it ever had. The girls of the family took turns sitting between yards of velvet draperies and oriental rugs hanging in the, window, in, in the windows. They looked out and occasionally smiled or winked or beckoned, only occasionally. Mostly, they looked their elaborate dresses, long-sleeved and long-skirted, hiding the nakedness that stood in their eyes. So fluid has the population in that area been that probably no one remembers longer, longer ago, before the time the gypsies and the time of the teenagers, when the Breedloves lived there, nestled together in the storefront, festering together in the debris of a realtor's whim. They slipped in and out of the box of peeling gray, making no stir in the neighborhood, no sound in the labor force, and no wave in the mayor's office. Each member of the family in his own cell of consciousness, each making his own patchwork quilt of reality, collecting fragments of experience here, pieces of information there. From the tiny impressions gleaned from one another, they created a sense of belonging and tried to make do with the way they found each other. 
The plan of the living quarters was as unimaginative as a first-generation Greek landlord could contrive it to be. The large store area was partitioned into two rooms by beaverboard planks that did not reach to the ceiling. There was a living room, which the family called the front room, and the bedroom where all the living was done. In the front room were two sofas, an upright piano, and a tiny artificial Christmas tree, which had been there before, decorated and dust-laden for two years. The bedroom had three beds, a narrow iron bed for Sammy, 14 years old, another for Piccola, 11 years old, and a double bed for Charlie and Mrs. Breedlove. In the center of the bedroom, for the even distribution of heat, stood a coal stove, Trunks, chairs, a small end table, and a cardboard wardrobe closet were placed around the walls. The kitchen was in the back of this apartment, a separate room. There were no bath facilities, only a toilet bowl, inaccessible to the eye, if not the ear, of the tenants. There is nothing more to say about the furnishings. They were anything but describable, having been conceived, manufactured, shipped, and sold in various states of thoughtlessness, greed, and indifference. The furniture had aged without ever having become familiar. People had owned it, but never known it. No one had lost a penny or a brooch under the cushions of either sofa and remembered the place and time of the loss or the finding. No one had clucked and said, but I had it just a minute ago. I was sitting right there talking to, or here it is. It must have slipped down while I was feeding the baby. No one had given birth in one of the beds or remembered with fondness the peeled paint places because that's what baby, when he learned to pull himself up, used to pick loose. No thrifty child had tucked a wad of gum under the table. No happy drunk, a friend of the family with a fat neck, unmarried, you know, but God how he eats, had sat at the piano and played You Are My Sunshine. No young girl had stared at the tiny Christmas tree and remembered when she had decorated it or wondered if that blue ball was going to hold or if he would ever come back to see it. There were no memories among those pieces, certainly no memories to be cherished. Occasionally, an item provoked a physical reaction, an increase of acid irritation in the upper, di in the upper intestinal tract, a light flush of perspiration at the back of the neck as circumstances surrounding the piece of furniture were recalled. The sofa, for example. It had been purchased new, but the fabric had split right across the back by the time it was delivered. The store would not take the responsibility. Look a here, buddy. It was okay when I put it on the truck. The store can't do anything about it once it's on the truck. Listerine and Lucky Strike breath. But I don't want no tour couch if and I bought it new pleading eyes and tightened testicles. Tough shit, buddy. You're tough shit. You could hate a sofa, of course. That is, if you could hate a sofa, but it didn't matter. You still had to get together $4.80 a month if you had to pay $4.80 a month for a sofa that started off split, no good, and humiliating. You couldn't take any joy in owning it. And the joylessness stank, pervading everything. The stink of it kept you from painting the beaverboard walls, from getting a matching piece of material for the chair, even from sewing up the split, which became a gash, which became a gaping chasm that exposed the cheap frame and cheaper upholstery. It withheld the refreshment and asleep slept on it. It imposed a furtiveness on the loving done on it, like a sore tooth that 
is not content to throb in isolation, but must diffuse its own pain to other parts of the body, making breathing difficult, vision limited, nerves unsettled, so a hatred piece of furniture produces a fretful malaise that asserts itself throughout the house and limits the delight of things not related to it. The only living thing in the breed loves his house was the coal stove, which lived independently of everything and everyone, its fire being out, banked, or up at its own discretion, in spite of the fact that the family fed it and knew all the details of its regiment. Sprinkle, do not bump, not too much. The fire seemed to live, go down, or die according to its own schemata. In the morning, however, it always saw fit to die. Here is the family, mother and father, Dick and Jane. They live in the green and white house. They are... The Breedloves did not live in a storefront because they were having temporary difficulty adjusting to the cutbacks at the plant. They lived there because they were poor and black, and they stayed there because they believed they were ugly. Although their poverty, although their poverty was traditional and stultifying, it was not unique. But their ugliness was unique. No one could have convinced them that they were not relentlessly and aggressively ugly, except for the father, Charlie, whose ugliness, the result of despair, dissipation, and violence directed towards petty things and weak people, was behavior. The rest of the family. Mrs. Breedlove, Sammy Breedlove, and Piccola Breedlove wore their ugliness, put it on, so to speak, although it did not belong to them. The eyes, the small eyes set closely together under narrow foreheads, the low, irregular hairlines, which seemed even more irregular in contrast to the straight, heavy eyebrows, which nearly met keen but crooked noses with insolent nostrils. They had high cheekbones and their ears turned forward. Shapely lips which called attention not to themselves but to the rest of the face. You looked at them and wondered why they were so ugly. You looked closely and could not find the source. Then you realized that it came from conviction, their conviction. It was as though some mysterious all-knowing master had given each one a cloak of ugliness to wear, and they each had accepted it without question. The master had said, you are ugly people. They had looked about themselves and saw nothing to contradict the statement, saw, in fact, support for it leaning at them from every billboard, every movie, every glance. Yes, they had said, you are right. And they took the ugliness in their hands, threw it as a mantle over them, and went about the world with it, dealing with it according to his own way. Mrs. Breedlove handled hers as an actor does a prop for the articulation of character, for support of a role she frequently imagined was hers, martyrdom. Sammy used his as a weapon to cause others pain. He adjusted his behavior to it, chose his companions on the basis of it, people who could be fascinated, even intimidated by it. And Piccola, she hid behind hers, concealed, veiled, eclipsed, peeping out from behind the shroud very seldom, and then only to yearn for the return of her mask. This family, on a Saturday morning in October, began, one by one, to stir out of their dreams of affluence and vengeance into the anonymous misery of their storefront. Mrs. Breedlove slipped noiselessly out of bed, put a sweater on over her nightgown, which was an old lady dress, and walked toward the kitchen, her one good foot made hard 
bony sounds, the twisted one whispered on the linoleum. In the kitchen, she made noises with doors, faucets, and pans. The noises were hollow, but the threats they implied were not. Piccola opened her eyes and lay staring at the dead cold stove. Charlie mumbled, thrashed about in the bed for a minute, and then was quiet. Even from where Piccola lay, she could smell Charlie's whiskey. The noises in the kitchen came louder and less hollow. There was direction and purpose in Mrs. Breedlove's movements that had nothing to do with the preparation of breakfast. This awareness, supported by ample evidence from the past, made Piccola tighten her stomach muscles and ration her breath. Charlie had come home drunk. Unfortunately, he had been too drunk to quarrel, so the whole business would have to erupt this morning because it had not taken place immediately. The oncoming fight would lack spontaneity. It would be calculated, uninspired, and deadly. Mrs. Breedlove came swiftly into the room and stood at the foot of the bed where Charlie lay. I need some coal in this house. Charlie did not move. Hear me? Mrs. Breedlove jabbed Charlie's foot. Charlie opened his eyes slowly. They were red and menacing. With no exception, Charlie had the meanest eyes in town. Oh, woman, I said I need some coal. It's as cold as a witch's tit in this house. Your whiskey ass wouldn't feel hellfire, but I'm cold. I got to do a lot of things, but I ain't got to freeze. Leave me alone. Not until you get me some coal. If working like a mule don't give me the right to be warm, what am I doing it for? You sure ain't bringing in nothing. If it was left up to you, we'd all be dead. Her voice was like an earache in the brain. If you think I'm going to wade out in the cold and get it myself, you better think again. I don't give a shit how you get it. A bubble of violence burst in his throat. You going to get your drunk self out of that bed and get me some coal or not? Silence. Charlie, silence. Don't try me this morning, man. You say one more word and I'll split you open. Silence. All right, all right. But if I sneeze once, just once, God help your butt. Sammy was awake now too, but pretending to be asleep. Piccola still held her stomach muscles taut and conserved her breath. They all knew that Mrs. Breedlove could have, would have, and had gotten coal from the shed, or that Sammy or Piccola could be directed to get it. But the unquarreled evening hung like the first note of a dirge in sullenly expected air. An escape, an, an escape of drunkenness, no matter how routine, had its own ceremonial close. The tiny undistinguished days that Mrs. Breedlove lived were identified, grouped, and classified by these quarrels. They gave substance to the minutes and hours otherwise dim and unrecalled. They relived the tiresomeness of poverty, gave grandeur to the dead rooms. In these violent breaks in routine that were, that were themselves routine, she could display the style and imagination of what she believed to be her own true self. To deprive her of these fights was to deprive her of all the zest and reasonableness of life. Charlie, by his habitual drunkenness or orneriness, provided them both with the material they needed to make their lives tolerable. Mrs. Breedlove considered herself an upright and Christian woman, burdened with the no-account man whom God wanted her to punish. Charlie was beyond redemption, of course, and redemption was hardly the point. Mrs. Breedlove was not interested in Christ the Redeemer, but Christ the Judge. Often she could be heard discoursing with Jesus about Charlie, 
pleading with him to help her strike the bastard down from his pinochle of pride. And once again, when a drunken gesture catapulted Charlie into the red-hot stove, she screamed, get him, Jesus, Jesus, get him. If Charlie had stopped drinking, she would never have forgiven Jesus. She needed Charlie's sins desperately. The lower he sank, the wilder and more irresponsible he became, the more splendid she and her task became in the name of Jesus. No less did Charlie need her. She was one of the few things abhorrent to him that he could touch and therefore hurt. He poured out on he poured out on her the sum of all his inarticulate fury and aborted desires. Hating her, he could leave himself intact. When he was still very young, Charlie had been surprised in some bushes by two white men while he was newly but earnestly engaged in eliciting sexual pleasure from a little country girl. The men had shown a flashlight right on his behind. He had stopped, terrified. They chuckled. The beam of the flashlight did not move. Go on, they said. Go on and finish. And nigger, make it good. The flashlight did not move. For some reason, Charlie had not hated the white men. He hated, despised the girl. Even a half-remembrance of this episode, along with a myriad other humiliations, defeats and emasculations could stir him into, into flights of depravity that surprised himself, but only himself. Somehow he could not astound. He could only be astounded. So he gave that up too. Charlie and Mrs. Breedlove fought each other with a darkly brutal formalism that was paralleled only by their lovemaking. Tacitly, they had agreed not to kill each other. He fought her the way a coward fights a man, with feet, the palms of his hands and teeth. She, in turn, fought back in a purely feminine way, with frying pans and pokers, and occasionally a flat iron would sail towards his head. They did not talk, groan, or curse during these beatings. There was only the muted sound of falling things and flesh on unsurprised flesh. There was a difference in the reaction of the children to these battles. Sammy cursed for a while or left the house or threw himself into the fray. He was known by the time he was 14 to have run away from home no less than 27 times. Once he got to Buffalo and stayed three months. His returns, whether by force or circumstance, were sullen. Piccola, on the other hand, restricted by youth and sex, experimented, the, experimented with methods of endurance. Though the methods varied, the pain was as consistent as it was deep. She struggled between an overwhelming desire that one would kill the other and a profound wish that she herself could die. Now she was whispering, don't, Mrs. Breedlove, don't. Piccola, like Sammy and Charlie, always called her mother Mrs. Breedlove. Don't, Mrs. Breedlove, don't. But Mrs. Breedlove did. By the grace, no doubt of God, Mrs. Breedlove sneezed just once. She ran into the bedroom with a dishpan full of cold water and threw it in Charlie's face. He sat up choking and spitting. Naked and ashing, he leapt from the bed and with a flying tackle grabbed his wife around the waist and they hit the floor. Charlie picked her up and knocked her down with the back of his hand. She fell in a sitting position, her back supported by Sammy's bed frame. She had not let go of the dishpan and began to hit Charlie's thighs and groin with it. He put his foot in her chest and she stopped the pan and she dropped the pan. Dropping to his knee, he struck her several times in the face and she might have succumbed early had he not hit his hand against the metal bed frame. 
She had not let go of the dishpan and began to hit Charlie on his thighs and groin with it. He put his foot in her chest and she dropped the pan, dropping to his knee. He struck her several times in the face and she might have succumbed early had he not hit his hand against the metal bed frame when his wife ducked. Mrs. Breedlove took advantage of this momentary suspension of blows and slipped out of his reach. Sammy, who had watched in silence their struggling at his bedside, suddenly began to hit his father about the head with both fists, shouting, you naked fuck! Over and over and over, Mrs. Breedlove, having snatched up the round, flat stove lid, ran tippy-toe to Charlie as he was pulling himself up from his knees and struck him two blows, knocking him right back into the senselessness out of which she had provoked him. Panting, she threw a quilt over him and let him lie. Sammy screamed, kill him, kill him! Mrs. Breedlove looked at Sammy with surprise. Cut out that noise, boy! She put the lid back in place and walked toward the kitchen. At the doorway, she paused long enough to say to her son, Get up from there anyhow. I need some coal. Letting herself breathe easy now, Piccola covered her head with the quilt. The sick feeling which she had tried to prevent by holding in her stomach came quietly in spite of, in spite of her precaution. There surged in her the desire to heave, but as always she knew she would not. Please, God, she whispered in the palm of her hand, please make me disappear. She squeezed her eyes shut. Little parts of her body faded away. Now slowly, now with a rush, slowly again, her fingers went one by one. Then her arms disappeared all the way to the elbow. Her feet now, yes, that was good. The legs all at once, it was hardest above the thighs. She had to be real steel and pull. Her stomach would not go, but finally it too went away. Then her chest, her neck. The face was hard too, almost done, almost. Only her tight, tight eyes were left. They were always left. Try as she might, she could never get her eyes to disappear. So what was the point? They were everything. Everything was there in them. All of those pictures, all of those faces. She had long ago given up the idea of running away to see new pictures, new faces, as Sammy, as Sammy had so often done. He never took her, and he never thought about his going ahead of time so that it was never planned. It wouldn't have worked anyway, as long as she looked the way she did. As long as she was ugly, she would have to stay with these people. Somehow she belonged to them. Long hours she sat looking in the mirror, trying to discover the secret of ugliness, the ugliness that made her ignored or despised at school by teachers and classmates alike. She was the only member of her class who sat alone at a double desk. The first letter of her name forced her to sit in the front of the room. But what about Marie Apol Apollonaire? Marie was in front of her, but she shared a desk with Luke Angelino. Her teachers had always treated her this way. They tried never to glance at her and called on her only when everyone was required to respond. She also knew that when one of the girls at school wanted to be particularly insulting to a boy or wanted to get an immediate response from him, she would say, Bobby loves Piccola Breedlove. Bobby, love, Bobby loves Piccola Breedlove and never fail to get a, to, and never fail to get peals of laughter from those in earshot and mock anger from the accused.
It had occurred to Piccola some time ago that if her eyes, those eyes that held the pictures and she knew the sights, if those eyes of hers were different, that is to say, beautiful, she herself would be different. Her teeth were good. At least her nose was not big and flat like some who were thought to be so cute. If she looked different, beautiful, maybe Charlie would be different. And Mrs. Breed loved too. Maybe they'd say, why, look at pretty-eyed Piccola. We mustn't do bad things in front of those pretty eyes. Pretty eyes, pretty blue eyes, big pretty eyes. Run, Jip, run, Jip runs, Alice runs, Alice has blue eyes, Jerry has blue eyes, Jerry runs, Alice runs, they run with their blue eyes, four blue eyes, four pretty blue eyes, blue sky eyes, blue like Mrs. Forrest, blue blouse eyes, morning glory blue eyes, Alice and Jerry blue storybook eyes. Each night without fail, she prayed for blue eyes. Fervently, for a year she had prayed. Although somewhat discouraged, she was not without hope. To have something as wonderful as that happen would take a long, long time. Thrown in this way into the binding conviction that only a miracle could relieve her, she would never know her beauty. She could only see what there was to see, the eyes of other people. She walks down Garden Avenue to a small grocery store which, sell, which sells penny candy. Three pennies are in her shoe slipping back and forth between the sock and the inner sole. With each step, she feels the painful press of the coins against her foot, a sweet, endurable, even cherished irritation, full of promise and delicate security. There is plenty of time to consider what to buy. Now, however, she moves down an avenue, gently buffeted by the familiar and therefore loved images, the dandelions at the base of the telephone pole. She wonders, do people call them, why do people call them weeds? She thought they were pretty, but grown-ups say, Miss Dunyon keeps her yard so nice, not a dandelion anywhere. Hunky women in black babushkas go into the fields with baskets to pull them up, but they do not want the yellow heads, only the jagged leaves. They make dandelion soup, dandelion wine. Nobody loves the head of a dandelion, maybe because they are so many strong, maybe because they're they are so many strong and so soon. There was the sidewalk crack shaped like a Y and the other one that lifted the concrete, concrete up from the dirt floor. Frequently, her sloughing step had made her trip over that one. Skates would go well over the sidewalk, old as it was, and smooth. It made the wheels glide evenly with a mild whirr. The newly paved walks were bumpy and uncomfortable, and the sound of the skate wheels on new walks was grating. These and other inanimate things she saw and experienced, they were real to her. She knew them. They were the codes of touchstones of the world, capable of translation and possession. She owned the crack that made her stumble. She owned the clumps of dandelions whose white heads last fall she had blown away, whose yellow heads this fall she peered into, and owning them made her part of the world. The world was part of her. She climbs four wooden steps to the door of Yakubowski's fresh veg, meats, and sundry store. A bell tinkles as she opens it. Standing before the counter, she looks at the array of candies. All Mary Janes, she decides, three for a penny. The, rest 
the resistant sweetness that breaks open at last to deliver peanut butter, the oil and salt which complement the sweet pull of caramel. A peal of anticipation unsettles her stomach. She pulls off her shoe and takes out the three pennies. The gray head of Mr. Yakubowski looms up over the counter. He urges his eyes out of his thoughts to encounter her. Blue eyes, blare dropped. Slowly, like Indian summer moving imperceptibly toward fall, he looks toward her. Somewhere between retina and object, between vision and view, his eyes draw back, hesitate, and hover. At some fixed point in time and space, he senses that he need not waste the effort of a glance. He does not see her because for him, there is nothing to see. How can a 52-year-old white immigrant storekeeper with the taste of potatoes and beer in his mouth, his mind honed on the doe-eyed Virgin Mary, his sensibilities blunted by a permanent awareness of loss, see a little black girl. Nothing in his life even suggested that the fear was possible, not to say desirable or necessary. Yeah? She looks up at him and sees the vacuum where curiosity ought to lodge. And something more, the total absence of human recognition, the glazed separateness. She does not know what keeps his glance suspended, perhaps because he is grown or a man and she a little girl, but she has seen interest, disgust, and even anger in grown male's eyes. Yet this vacuum is not new to her. It has an edge. Somewhere in this bottom lid is the distaste. She had seen it lurking in the eyes of all white people, so the distaste must be for her, her blackness, all things in her are flux and anticipation, but her blackness is static and dread, and it is the blackness that accounts for, that creates the vacuum edged with distaste in white eyes. She points her finger at the Mary Janes, a little black shaft of finger, its tip pressed on the display window. The quietly inoffensive assertion of a black child's attempt to communicate with a white adult. Them, the word is more sigh than sense. What? These? These? Phlegm and impatience mingle in his voice. She shakes, she shakes her head, her fingertip fixed on the spot which, in her view, at any rate, identifies the Mary Janes. He cannot see her view. The angle of his vision, the slant of her finger, makes it incomprehensible to him. His lumpy red hand plops around in the glass casing like the agitated head of a chicken outraged by the loss of its body. Christ, can't you talk? His fingers brush the Mary Janes. She nods. Well, why didn't you say so? One? How many? Piccola unfolds her fist, showing the three pennies. He scoots three Mary Janes towards her, three yellow rectangles in each packet. She holds the money toward him. He hesitates, not wanting to touch her hand. She does not know how to move the finger of her right hand from the display counter or how to get the coins out of her left hand. Finally, he reaches over and takes the pennies from her hand. His nails graze her damp palm. Outside, Pecola feels the inexplicable shame. Ebb. Dandelions. A dart of affection leaps out from her to them, but they do not look at her and do not send love back. She thinks, they are ugly. They are weeds. Preoccupied with that revelation, she trips on the sidewalk crack. Anger stirs and wakes in her. It opens its mouth and, like a hot-mouthed puppy, laps up the dredges of her shame. Anger is bitter. There is a sense of being in anger, 
a reality and presence, an awareness of worth. It is a lovely surging. Her thoughts fall back to Mr. Yakubowski's eyes, his phlegmy voice. The anger will not hold. The puppy is too easily surfeited. Its thirst too quickly quenched. It sleeps. The shame wells up again, its muddy rivulet seeping into her eyes. What to do before the tears come? She remembers the Mary Janes. Each pale yellow wrapper has a picture on it, a picture of little Mary Jane for whom the candy is named, smiling white face, blonde hair in gentle disarray, blue eyes looking out of a world of clean comfort. The eyes are petulant, mischievous. To Pecola, they are simply pretty. She eats the candy, and its sweetness is good. To eat candy is somehow to eat the eyes, eat Mary Jane, love Mary Jane, be Mary Jane. Three pennies had brought her nine lovely orgasms with Mary Jane, lovely Mary Jane, for whom a candy is named. Three whores lived in the apartment above the Breedloves' storefront, China, Poland, and Miss Marie. Piccola loved them, visited them, and ran their errands. They, in turn, did not despise her. On an October morning, the morning of the stove-lit triumph, Piccola climbed the stairs to their apartment. Even before the door was opened to her tapping, she could hear Poland singing, her voice sweet and hard like new strawberries. I got blues in my meat in my meal barrel, blues up on the shelf. I got blues in my meal barrel, blues up on the shelf, on the shelf, blues in my bedroom because I'm sleeping by myself. Hi, Dumplin', where are your socks? Marie seldom called Piccola the same thing twice, but invariably her epithets were fond ones, chosen, chosen from menus and dishes that were forever uppermost in her mind. Hello, Miss Marie. Hello, Miss China. Hello, Miss Poland. You heard me. Where are your socks? You as bare-legged as your dog. I couldn't find any. Couldn't find any? Must be something in your house that loves socks. China chuckled. Whenever something was missing, Marie attributed its disappearance to something in the house that loved it. There is something in this house that loves braziers, she would say with alarm. Poland and China were getting ready for the evening. Poland forever ironing, forever singing. China sitting on a pale green kitchen chair forever and forever curling her hair. Marie never got ready. The women were friendly but slow to begin but slow to begin talk. Piccola always took the initiative with Marie, who, once inspired, was difficult to stop. How come you got so many boyfriends, Miss Marie? Boyfriends? Boyfriends? Chitlin, I ain't seen a boy since 19 and 27. You didn't see none then. China stuck the hot curlers into a tin of new Nile hairdressing. The oil hissed at the touch of the hot metal. How come, Miss Marie? Piccola insisted. How come what? How come I ain't seen a boy since 19 and 27? Because they ain't been no boy since then. That's when they stopped. Folks started getting born old. You mean that's when you got old? China said. I ain't never got old, just fat. Same thing. You think because you're skinny, folks think you young. You make a haint by a girdle. You'd make a haint by a girdle. And you look like the north side of a southbound mule. All I know is them bandy little legs of yours is every bit as old as mine. Don't worry about my bandy legs. That's the first thing they push aside. All three of the women laughed. Marie threw back her head. 
From deep inside, her laughter came like the sound of many rivers, freely, deeply, muddily heading for the room of an open sea. China giggled spastically. Each gasp seemed to be yanked out of her by some unseen hand jerking an unseen string. Poland, who seldom spoke unless she was drunk, laughed without sound. She was the so when she was sober, she hummed mostly or chanted blue songs of which she knew many. Piccola fingered the fringe of a scarf that lay on the back of a sofa. I've never seen nobody with as many boyfriends as you got, Miss Marie. How come they all love you? Marie opened a bottle of root beer. What else they gonna do? They know I'm rich and good looking. They wants to put their toes in my curly hair and get at my money. You rich, Miss Marie? Puddin', I got money's mammy. Where you get it from? You don't do no work. Yeah, said China. Where you get it from? Hoover give it to me. I did him a favor once for the FB and I. What'd you do? I did him a favor. They wanted to catch this crook, you see, name of Johnny. He was a low down. He's as low down as they come. We know that, China arranged a curl. The FB and I wanted him bad. We killed more people than T. He had killed more people than TB. And if you crossed him, whoa, Jesus, he'd run you as long as there was ground. Well, I was little and cute then. No more than 90 pounds soaking wet. You ain't never been soaking wet. China said, well, you ain't never been dry. Shut up. Let me tell you, Sweden, to tell it true, I was the only one could handle him. He'd go out and rob a bank or kill some people. And I'd say to him, soft like, Johnny, you shouldn't do that. And he'd say he just had to bring me pretty things, lacy drawers and all. And every Sunday we'd get a case of beer and fry up some fish. We'd fry it in meal and egg batter, you know. And when it was all brown and crisp, not hard though, we'd break open that cold beer. Marie's eyes went soft as the memory of just such a meal sometimes somewhere transfixed her. All her stories were subject to breaking down at descriptions of at descriptions of food. Piccola saw Marie's teeth settling down in the back of crisp sea bass, saw the fat fingers putting back in her mouth tiny flakes of white hot meat that had escaped from her lips. She heard the pop of the beer bottle cap. Smelled, smelled the acridness of the first stream of, va of vapor, felt the cold beeriness at the tongue. She ended the daydream long before Marie. But what about the money? She asked. China hooted. She's making like she's the lady in red that told on Dillinger. Dillinger wouldn't have come near you lessen he was going hunting in Africa to shoot you for a hippo. Well, this hippo had a ball back in Chicago. Whoa, Jesus, 99. How come you always say, whoa, Jesus, and a number? Piccola had long wanted to know. Because my mama taught me never to cuss. Did she teach you not to drop your drawers? China asked. Didn't have none, said Marie. Never saw a pair of drawers till I was 15 when I left Jackson and was doing day work in Cincinnati. My white lady gave me some old ones of hers. I thought they were some kind of stocking cap. I put it on my head when I dusted. When she saw me, she liked to fell out. You must have been one dumb somebody. China lit a cigarette and cooled her irons. How'd I know? Marie paused. And what's the use of putting on something you got to keep taking off all the time? Dewey never let me keep them on long enough to get used to them. Dewey who? This was somebody new to Piccola. Dewey who? Chicken, you never heard me tell of Dewey? Marie was shocked by her negligence. 
No, ma'am. Oh, honey, you must you missed half your life. Whoa, Jesus, 195. You're talking about smooth. I met him when I was 14. We ran away and lived together like married for three years. You know, all those clinker tops you see running up here? 50 of them in a bowl wouldn't make a dewy prince ankle bone. Oh, Lord, how that man loved me. China arranged a fingerful of hair into a bang effect. Then why he left you to sell tail? Girl, when I found out I could sell it, that somebody would pay cold cash for it, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Poland began to laugh soundlessly. Me too. My auntie whipped me good that first time when I told her I didn't get no money. I said, money? For what? He didn't owe me nothing, she said. The hell he didn't. They all dissolved in laughter. Three merry gargoyles. Three Mary Harridans, amused by a long-ago time of ignorance. They did not belong to those generations of prostitutes created in novels with great and generous hearts dedicated because of the horror of the circumstance to ameliorating the luckless, barren life of men, taking money incidentally and humbly for their understanding. Nor were they from that sensitive breed of young girl gone wrong at the hands of fate, forced to cultivate an outward brittleness in order to protect her springtime from further shock, but knowing full well she was cut out for better things and could make right and could make the right man happy. Neither were they the sloppy, inadequate whores who, unable to make a living at it alone, turned to drug consumption or and traffic or pimps to help complete their scheme of self-destruction, avoiding suicide only to punish the memory of some absent father or to sustain the misery of some silent mother. Except for Marie's fabled love for Dewey Prince, these women hated men, all men without shame, apology, or discrimination. They abused their visitors with a scorn grown mechanical from use. Black men, white men, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, Jews, Poles, whatever— all were inadequate and weak. All came under their jaundiced eyes and were recipients of their disinterested wrath. They took delight in cheating them. On one occasion, the town well knew, they lured a Jew up the stairs, pounced on him, all three, held him up by the heels, took everything out of his pants pockets, and threw him out of the window. Neither did they have respect for women who, although not their colleagues, so to speak, nevertheless deceived their husbands. Regularly or irregularly, it made no difference. Sugar-coated whores, they called him, and did not yearn to be in their shoes. Their only respect was for what they would have described as good Christian colored women. The, the woman whose reputation was spotless and who tended to her family, who didn't drink or smoke or run around. These women had their undying, if covert, affection. They would sleep with their husbands and take their money, but always with a vengeance. Nor were they protective or solicitous of youthful innocence. They looked back on their own youth as a period of ignorance and regretted that they had not made more of it. They were not young girls in whores as clothing or whores regretting their loss of innocence. They were whores in whores clothing, whores who had never been young, who had no word for innocence. With Piccola, they were as free as they were with each other. Marie concocted stories for her because she was a child, but the stories were breezy and rough. If Piccola had announced her intention, her intention to live the life they did, they would not have tried to dissuade her or voice any alarm. You and Dewey Prince have any children, Miss Marie? 
Yeah, yeah, we had some, Marie fidgeted. She pulled a bobby pin from her hair and began to pick her teeth. That meant she didn't want to talk anymore. Piccola went to the window and looked down at the empty street. A tuft of grass had forced its way up through a crack in the sidewalk, only to meet a raw October wind. She thought of Dewey Prince and how he loved Miss Marie. What did love feel like, she wondered. How do grown-ups act when they love each other? Eat fish together? Into her eyes came the picture of Charlie and Mrs. Breedlove in bed. Her making sounds as though he were, he making sounds as though he were in pain, as though something had him by the throat and wouldn't let go. Terrible as his noises were, they were not nearly as bad as the no noise at all from her mother. It was as though she was not even there. Maybe that was love, choking sounds and silence. Turning her eyes from the window, Piccola looked at the women. China had changed her mind about the bangs and was arranging a small but sturdy pompadour. She was adept in creating any number of hairstyles, but each one left her with a pinched and harassed look. Then she applied makeup heavily. Now she gave herself surprised eyebrows and a cupid bow mouth. Later she would make oriental eyebrows and an evilly slashed mouth. Poland, in her sweet strawberry voice, began another song. I know a boy who is sky-soft brown. I know a boy who is sky-soft brown. The dirt leaps for joy when his feet touch the ground. His strut is a peacock. His eye is burning brass. His smile a sorghum syrup dripping slow sweet to the last. I know a boy who is sky-soft brown. Marie sat shelling peanuts and popping them into her mouth. Piccola looked and looked at the women. Were they real? Marie belched softly, purringly, lovingly. And that concludes part one of Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye here at Carla Reads the Classics. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, as you probably noticed here, I did not use the background music with this part of the novel, with this part of the reading. Uh, please let me know uh, whether you prefer it this way or if you would prefer the background music. And as always, I welcome your questions, your comments, and your suggestions at carlatreadstheclassics at gmail.com. And please remember that you can interact with the Q&A at the end of the episode description. So thanks again for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. Until next time.